Cruella seems like something very different. And I do wonder about, I wonder how well it would have done in the best of circumstances because it just doesn't look like the sort of movie that people expect from Disney. And I think the reviews and general reactions bear out that it is not that movie. That's not a negative comment. It's just not that thing that typically prints money for Disney. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, the only magazine in North America dedicated exclusively to the interests of the theatrical exhibition industry. Uh, we have a, a very special episode today, what I've been uh, terming in my head is the Memorial Day extravaganza episode, um, because we have what is our biggest weekend in a long time to really break down what happened at the box office and what that means moving forward. Uh, before we get to that, however, we do have some pretty major slash major-ish news items that have popped up over the last week to uh, contextualize and analyze for you. And to help me do both these things, we welcome Russ Fisher, the editorial director of Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And of course, uh, Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. Sean, big few days for you. Yeah, you know, there have been busy times during this pandemic, and they've almost always been not the happiest of times. So it's nice to come on here. I think on this weekend, we've all waited for with bated breath and actually talk about something that is quite significant. Yeah, I, I recall the last time you were on the podcast, I believe two weeks ago, uh, you cautioned, and rightly so, I, I believe, moderating your expectations uh, coming into this weekend. But I, I got to say, I've, I've never been happier that your box office predictions have come in under the mark. Me either. Yeah. And I was, I mean, going into last week, I was constantly just looking over everything that was coming in our way. We were kind of seeing strong pre-sales. And at one point you start to guess, you know, is it possible that we could actually be on the low end, even as one of the highest predictions out there? And that's just, that's the area we live in right now because you never know what's going to happen. Russ, I want to get to you uh, for this news to provide the the knowledge slash skepticism of a, of a situation that seems a little bit uncertain. I am, of course, talking about Amazon's purchase of MGM for a whopping $8.45 billion. Um, it was something that we brought up uh, a week or two ago on the podcast. I believe we were a little bit skeptical as to whether it would actually happen. And pending, uh, you know, various regulatory things that need to be ironed out, it looks like it's going to. So what does this mean? What does this not mean? What's the particular relevance for theaters? Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on this, Russ? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. And it's funny that you, I mean, the number 8.45 billion is a lot of money. And what's really interesting is I saw somebody tweeting about this, but just noting that it was like, to put this in context, Disney bought Marvel and Lucasfilm both for $8 billion, for less than Amazon paid for MGM. You get Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all the other properties that Lucas, smaller properties, obviously, but... Right. And all of the Marvel properties. They paid $4 billion for Marvel and $4 billion for Lucasfilm. Uh, so granted, those were a number of years ago, but it's just interesting to put this in a little bit of perspective. Uh, clearly, Amazon is 
not buying MGM so much as they are buying uh, intellectual property. They're buying Bond. They're buying Rocky. They're buying the right to make Tomb Raider movies, RoboCop movies, and more to the point, probably to make streaming series out of those shows uh, or out of those properties. Uh, the most, I think, the biggest question, uh, content-wise, that should be asked is: Will the next James Bond? be a theatrical extravaganza or will it be something like Amazon's forthcoming Lord of the Rings series? Uh, is Bond basically going to become a streaming property rather than a theatrical one? And we don't know the answer to that. We do know that uh, with Lord of the Rings, Amazon is paying half a billion dollars just for season one, so they're clearly willing to spend a lot of money. We also know that Prior to this, MGM had been cornerstone of the relaunch of United Artists, uh, or maybe it's like the re, 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 relaunch, uh, you know, in the past hundred years <laughs> At plus. At this point, who knows? Nothing, ha- nothing has been relaunched more than United Artists, and I think no library has been bought and sold more than MGM. So uh, it just seems like this is the way it goes with them. But MGM had worked with Annapurna Pictures. They had created United Artists uh, releasing, which was the newest version of United Artists. Uh, that is how uh, the new Bond movie, No Time to Die, is going into theaters, is through United Artists, in the States at least. Um, and the whole point of UA and this relaunched UA was to exploit MGM properties for streaming series. At the time, a couple of years ago when this was formed, those series were going to go to different places. Now, clearly, they're all going to end up on Amazon. So if there's a new, you know, at the time, there were things mentioned like a War Games series and some other things like that. Those would all be potentially Amazon properties at this point. I mean, if I were to guess on the on the subject of uh, future James Bond films uh, not going theatrical, or at least not going exclusively theatrical, I don't know. I just I just feel like that would be a misstep for them. You look at these properties that uh, Amazon now has the rights to, RoboCop, Rocky, Tomb Raider. These are all franchises that, in the case of Rocky, are still ongoing with the Creed movies. Or you look at like RoboCop and Tomb Raider. Those have been rebooted within the last two years, and they didn't really do well. Ditto on the other side of the aisle. You mentioned Lord of the Rings. I mean, and they tried to do a new trilogy of that in the Hobbit trilogy, and that didn't do well. It feels like maybe uh, shifting things to a streaming TV series. I, I would do that when you've exhausted, maybe, or feel like you've exhausted your theatrical potential. And when it comes to Bond, I don't think that, that we're there yet. I mean, I would agree with that, but I would have also said there was more theatrical juice left in uh, the Jack Ryan character, for example, uh, which Amazon has had not huge, but some measure of success with as a streaming property. I don't know. I, With respect to Amazon and Bond, nobody knows what they're going to do yet. I don't think we're going to hear anything until No Time to Die comes out because clearly they're going to want to prioritize uh, publicity for that movie. They're going to want to push that as a movie, assuming that it is going to remain exclusively theatrical for the time being. Which I'd imagine it was. I mean, this deal that has been announced, it's not it's fixed. not done yet. It, it, take, exactly. it takes time right. for these lawyers and everything and both right. sides to agree to the terms. Right. So. so assuming that it does go through, No Time to Die is going to almost probably be unaffected. Uh, but then the question is, once that is out in theaters and it's done its run, are we going to hear that the next Bond is not exclusively theatrical? I would honestly be surprised if Bond remained exclusively theatrical going forward. Oh, I would be surprised if they went hybrid, but I've been surprised by a lot this last year. <laughs> Sean, tiebreaker. 
Ooh. Well, I know that, you know, we, we saw the Broccoli family come out and say that Bond will remain a, a theatrical franchise going forward, but um, you bring up a fair qualifier because that, that doesn't necessarily mean exclusively theatrical. Uh, my gut feeling is that they will keep it because we've talked several times over the past year about the efforts that were made during the pandemic to sell off No Time to Die uh, to a streamer, and everyone balked at the price that was being floated. And as long as I think that family is in charge of the rights of that franchise, that's going to be the status quo. And But I do also agree that they'll probably, Amazon will try to, to spin this off into you know some other branches of the universe, but I would imagine those core James Bond films remain theatrical for at least the time being. A young Bond miniseries like a Riverdale, but James Bond. Yeah, what I would say about that is, or the interesting thing I think is that of all of the rights-holding production companies that are out there, few are as iron-fisted and control-oriented as Eon, which is uh, the company you know, that ultimately produces the James Bond movies. And so that's the one place where I can see, okay, it, it is possible that Eon will re- retain enough control uh, and has enough determination power that they can keep Bond exclusively theatrical. I can also see this deal being the thing that finally shakes some of that control out of their firmly closed fist. But, you know, we got to wait and see. Now, moving from one uh, intimidating, badass, tuck swearing movie main character to another. We're shifting it from Bond to Boss Baby. So Boss Baby Family Business, the sequel to the, I would say, surprise hit Boss Baby, was previously scheduled for exclusive theatrical release uh, this September. Uh, However, Universal has both moved it forward to Friday, July 2nd, and will now be releasing it day and date, both in theaters and on Peacock Premium, Um, another situation of something we've seen before, which is studios kind of offloading some of their product onto their sister streaming services as a way to boost subscribers, as a way to boost engagement. I'm not the target demo for the Boss Baby franchise, let's say, but um, I, I was disappointed to see the news given the fact that, you know, something we've spoken about at length on this podcast before, how well family films have been doing over this last year in terms of getting people to theaters. Uh, Sean, what was your take on this? What uh, what were you estimating that Boss Baby would be able to pull before? And what are you thinking now? I think it wasn't too shocking in some ways, but at the same time, it is disappointing that it will be a hybrid release because, uh, I mean, the first film opened to a little over 50 million, which I completely agree. That was a little bit of a surprise hit when that happened. It was It was definitely not estimated to do as well as it did. Uh, and it ended up around 528 million worldwide. So this was a significant potential franchise movie and still is. I don't want to say it in the past tense because it's regardless of how it's releasing, it is a franchise. Uh, it's I think it's tough to say how much that impacts domestic box office now because this is this is a first, not not in the world of streaming and hybrid releases, but for Peacock in in particular which we know has, uh, according to several reports, Observer has a, a recent estimate from about two weeks ago pointing to a little over 40 million subscribers for Peacock, which is comparable to to what HBO Max has. And we've seen some other releases like Tom and Jerry also go day and date. So 
you know, I, I think we kind of have to kind of step back and just treat this as another completely new entity in terms of a box office player. But I think the advantages are that it will be the middle of summer and we'll have had over a month's worth of movies coming out and people going back to theaters en masse. And a lot of parents who are just really ready to get their kids out of the house and not not want to stream this. So if there's an upside there, that's what it is. But the downside is it's it's very possible this will cut into earnings to some level. We just can't really responsibly know exactly how much that will be yet. While a lot of new release movies that go straight to streaming do seem to have a high level of public visibility for maybe a week, and then they kind of seem to fall off the radar, something like Boss Baby is very different because six-year-olds, by and large, are not and or should not be on social media, so you don't hear about what they're watching. Um, and something like the Boss Baby is has done very well because it was very popular with kids. It's very popular as a family movie. It's not the sort of thing you're going to hear people talking about so much. Although, I will say, the first movie, it's funny. I like it. It's a good movie. I don't know. I don't love this move, but it makes a lot of sense, and especially in light of the idea that you know Universal is kind of following in, in Warner Brothers' footsteps and that they are boosting Peacock with this uh, high-profile new release that has a lot of built-in uh, family audience support. So it, it makes a lot of sense. I can imagine it's still actually doing pretty well theatrically. Will it do what it would have done otherwise? Obviously not, but I don't know. Is there any sort of formula that we can apply in general to like the new expectations with respect to what something might do theatrically when it's also debuting day and date on streaming? Now that we are getting not out, you know we're not out of COVID, but we're getting hopefully towards the end and things are going back to whatever normal is. The short answer is no, <laughs> uh, but that's not to, that's not to say that there aren't you know you can come up with a lot of different scenarios. I think there would be if you know let's say if this were a Disney move because now we have some data on Cruella and now we have prior data from Raya, but that's a completely different subscriber base. So now now we just kind of have to look at who is paying for Peacock. Probably a lot of parents out there who have binge watched The Office <laughs> for the twentieth time or just people in general that don't have to be parents, but in terms of the target demographic for, for what this movie's going for, it's, it's, it's tough to say. And I, I'm to your, you said it really well. Yes, it will impact the box office earnings, but we really don't know for sure because until we have some more of these under our belt to kind of look at historically and you know, who knows in a month, we can still see more and more people going back to theaters. We already had a good weekend, which we're about to talk about, but the sentiment for going back is steadily increasing. And in four or five weeks, the landscape may look completely different even than it does right now. So it's simplistic to say that this move of boss baby family business from exclusively theatrical to a day and date release is either good or bad. We really, it's a lot of gray area in the middle there. I think it's risk mitigating is how I'll put it from their yes. point of view. <laughs> They're just playing it as safe as they can. I feel like I can say kind of equivocally that the news coming out of this past box office weekend with the dual wide releases of A Quiet Place Part 2 and Cruella, the first weekend since the start of the pandemic when we had two films of that caliber come out on the same day, that's good. Check mark, no question. We had a good weekend at the box office. Sean, uh, do you feel comfortable saying that? And what were your expectations for A Quiet Place Part 2 and where did the film end up measuring up? Yeah, this weekend was, you know, by and large, this was the turning point. This was the official start of 
this next chapter, I think, in the transition back to moviegoing for people who aren't necessarily your everyday moviegoers. We're, we're seeing more and more audiences come back. And for the sequel to open to essentially, you know, just a few dollars short of its predecessor says a lot because 70% of theaters open approximately. And not everybody is is going back yet, as we just and there, mentioned. And there's limited so, capacity. I mean, there, and there's capacity and restrictions issues. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Sean, as we record this podcast, we're looking at an estimated forty eight point three million three day haul over approximately uh, three thousand seven hundred screens. You expand that to the four day haul at a weekend, and it is fifty eight point five million. Uh, highest domestic debut for an IMAX opening since pre-pandemic, and add in the other films on the list, including Cruella, including Spiral, which continues to have a pretty decent hold. This is the highest weekend since the start of the pandemic. So do you feel like we're at a point now where we're going to continue to see that upward trajectory, or is it going to be a more fits and starts type thing as we make it through the summer? A little bit of both. I think we we can't really expect to, this isn't going to happen every week yet. Uh, we, we have new major films releasing every weekend from here on, which in itself is a is a major step forward. I mean, that's something we have not had at all during the pandemic at any point. So, you know, we'll see movies like Peter Rabbit do well. Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife, I think In the Heights, has a lot of potential to break out this month. And then Fast 9. So the, there are a few weekends here and there. And then Conjuring opens this weekend, but that's, of course, a hybrid release. Once we get into July, though, and we start seeing you know, the Marvel film, Black Widow, and then we'll have uh, Jungle Cruise, and we'll have several other releases in between. Shyamalan's new movie, uh, Space Jam. It's it's just kind of an every week kind of thing, but it really builds on itself over time. So we're not going to see a $50 million opener every week yet, but we're going to progressively get back to where that is a more regularly occurring thing. And I, I think by the end of summer, and uh, in, in leading into the early fall, especially with how the calendar looks like, like right now, that's when we'll really kind of see that that sustained momentum of you know regular fifty to seventy five to potentially hundred million dollar openers again. But this is that step to get there. Now that we've had one, we've proven like the world has kind of seen that it is possible, and all these theaters are dead. Proclamations have essentially just gone out the window after this weekend. And you know, movie going is back. That's really, it's the simplest way to put it. It's not back for 100% of people yet, but it's back for a lot of people and increasingly more each week. And when you go down the list of what's going to be coming out and, and how this summer looks, we are talking about the domestic market, but international markets are key here as well, especially given that the pace of recovery in different countries in different markets is vastly different. Uh, we're not really going to be getting all the same films at the same time time anymore. So you're looking at uh, Peter Rabbit, which is not out here yet in the U.S., has just had its second week uh, in the U.K., Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It, just opened in the U.K., and uh, interestingly, a little bit of, I don't, don't want to say less than positive news that caught my eye, in its second week of release in China, F9 dropped a pretty steep 85%. I mean, how will that play into your box office analysis, Sean, as you're trying to, you know, use the comps and use the numbers and decide, you know, what do we think this film is going to make? How do you bring international cumes uh, into that configuration as you do this analysis? It really varies by the film, by the market, and I think in particular F9's situation with regard to John Cena's comments 
a lot of people are wondering if that impacted the drop or not. If it did, I tend to think it's probably not as substantial as as some may believe because this is a front-loaded franchise to begin with, even in China. And in China, Hollywood releases tend to get maybe a few weeks run tops anyway. The, the eighth Fast and Furious film dropped 70% in its second weekend four years ago. So 70 to 80% is not a alarmingly big jump in number, especially when you combine it with the fact that word of mouth on the film hasn't been as strong on Fast 9 in China so far according to to several of their their tracking uh, metrics. So it's possible that the Cena comments had an impact and w- that will, will not have an impact here in North America at all. If anything, his presence in the film may help it somewhat. I got to admit, in what Cena comments are we talking about? I've, I've been mercifully, blissfully unplugged over Memorial Day weekend. Oh, well, this was last week. It was, uh, he referred to Taiwan as a country. And then in Mandarin gave an extremely conciliatory statement talking about how much he loves China and the Chinese people. And he did not explicitly say, I'm sorry, I called Taiwan a country, but it was basically that. And uh, yeah, it was a really interesting bit of string pulling by probably Chinese officials who said, hey, if you want your movie to actually play here, you got to say something and you got to say something nice. It looked a lot like groveling. Speaking of elements of this business that make it so difficult to predict how movies are going to do, it's just, goodness gracious, Sean, I don't know how you do it. Things from left field every two minutes. It's true. But the, the good news is, if you want to take some good news out of that situation, it really shouldn't affect things in North America, which is outside of China, this movie's biggest market. And and arguably the most important movie now on the slate for quite some time. I, I dare say it's just as important as Black Widow because, yes, Black Widow is a Marvel movie and Marvel movies are going to bring people back, but it's also a day and date release. Fast 9 is exclusive in theaters, just like A Quiet Place Part 2. And and in my book, that makes it easily one of those most important movies of the summer and the entire year. Uh, so here's hoping there are no more controversies that might impact it here <laughs> uh, locally, so to speak. But uh, I do think I do think this weekend's results really indicate the potential for that movie. I mean, th- this is a franchise that was was probably losing a little steam. Let's be fair. After the seventh film came out, was the biggest hit about six years ago, and Paul Walker's final film, and then the eighth film disappointed some fans and I think anticipation for for more kind of waned a little bit but now we've had this this constant delay of of this movie and and no movies coming out at all during the pandemic and it really brings to mind that maybe audience tastes are changed even if they're temporary this could be the kind of, of movie that really benefits from just that big screen experience regardless of anyone's prior opinions about what was happening to the series on the more I don't want to say mediocre but yeah, compared to A Quiet Place Part 2, uh, mediocre side of the box office equation, we had Cruella, which is estimated to have a three-day domestic debut of $21.3 million from uh, slightly under 4K screens. 
obviously that had its debut day and date. How do you think that affected its box office debut? I mean, the thing about Cruella is it's kind of, Cruella is a bizarre movie. You look at it and it doesn't look like a Disney movie. So you have to wonder if the audience that would typically, by default, go to any Disney movie, even really considered Cruella, because it actually kind of looks like the sort of movie that we complain that Disney doesn't make anymore. If you're talking about like, oh, something wicked this way comes, or one of those weird like late 70s, early 80s live action movies. When Disney was going through kind of an identity change, hadn't really refound its footing with the the wave of animated films uh, that you know hit. It's with, not them doing a beat for beat remake of The Lion King, which they know is exactly make an absolute ton of money. Yeah, and that like that is printing money. You don't even have to question it; it's obvious. Cruella seems like something very different, and I do wonder about. I wonder how well it would have done in the best of circumstances because it just doesn't look like the sort of movie that people expect from Disney. And I think the reviews and general reactions bear out that it is not that movie. And that that's not a negative comment. It's just not that thing that typically prints money for Disney. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that was something that really factored into forecasting even before the pandemic when this was when this movie was on our radar because of that very reason. This was not going to be your big, you know, four quadrant appealing revival of of a beloved Disney brand that attracts everyone of all ages and all backgrounds. Not to say that Cruella didn't have a diverse audience, but it was it was a little bit more niche compared to what they usually do. So I think the same assessment should be given to it as was A Quiet Place in terms of expectations because Cruella did beat expectations. That's the fairest thing to say. We forecast 22 million for the four day. It's estimated to be a little over 26 million. We'll get the final results after we record this, but they won't deviate much from that. Whereas in same for a quiet place, we had a forecast of 51. It's currently estimated to finish around 57 million. Live action reimaginings of Disney classics has become a franchise, a brand unto themselves. Russ, like you said, at this point, pretty much a license to print money with uh, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, with Lion King. But then you have the properties, I don't know, kind of on the bench, maybe not so front of mind as part of the quote unquote iconic Disney renaissance. Not quite so focused on my nostalgia. I mean, they did a Lady and the Tramp remake that got push to Disney Plus. Cruella is going day and date. I mean, I feel like another film in that kind of maybe second tier Disney is is Pete's Dragon, which is a film that I really enjoyed, but I think it by far made the least of all that modern wave of Disney remakes, right? So maybe once they start getting more into the quote unquote backbench, you know, the potential is just not going to be there regardless. I mean, you're not going to get billions on a live action remake of The Black Cauldron. And I think this maybe was a reason that they used Cruella as an experiment, because maybe these are the kinds of movies they're going to want to put out on Disney Plus when they know that they might not have as much theatrical value as The Lion King or Aladdin. I mean, I I love Pete's Dragon, the new one. I think the original movie, having watched it as an adult, is abysmal. And the new one is actually pretty wonderful. It's a great film, but it is exactly the sort of movie that would now go to Disney+. Plus. No question. Cruella, weird choice. It's like, okay, so I, Tanya, did really well. 
Uh, you've got Emma Stone who wants to sign on and play the character. So you've got Oscar winners ready to do this. Disney's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. But you're talking about a movie that is reviving a character who's known for smoking and wanting to skin puppies. It's like not exactly really where Disney is going these days. So again, like it's kind of interesting that it got theatrical at all. You know, two years from now, Cruella would just be a Disney Plus movie, which is not even to say like it would just be a Disney Plus movie. That's not necessarily bad, but that's what it is. And that's no assessment as to its quality. It's just, right. I mean. it's a, They're different things. I would say that if Disney does it right, The Black Cauldron is Disney's Lord of the Rings. And the fact that they haven't tried to exploit it and do like that sort of, you know, big multi-film adaptation with that property is crazy to me because I don't know where the rights are to that film-wise. But that is like a sort of fantasy blockbuster that could keep, you know, the the money printing presses rolling at Disney for a long time to come. Guys, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week to discuss the box office receipts of The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It coming out this weekend. Uh, thanks, as always, to the team at Record Edit Podcast, which produces the Box Office Podcast. Tune in next week for box office analysis of The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It coming out in a few days. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with The Box Office Company and recorded at Podcast. Don't miss our next episode next Thursday. And please remember to subscribe. And if you like us, to toss a rating our way. Thanks. Thanks.